Devora Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. All right, I want to thank everybody for coming this morning and Naomi for setting up so beautifully. So we've been talking about Hakpada. Hakpada is internalized anger and resentment. And just for a quick summary, we know that um, there are certain tools that we can use when we're feeling this horrible feeling, which is somebody insulted and offended me or did something to me or didn't do something that I expected them to do. I didn't get invited when I thought I was going to be. I do so much for you. How come you don't reciprocate and do what I do? Uh, you know, that's not the way people should act. They should act the way I would act in a situation and all of the other reasons that people annoy us. And of course, we said that we have three circles of relationships, circle one, circle two, and circle three. Circle one are the people in your life that you don't choose. Those are the people in your close proximity who often tend to be the ones that we have the most hakpada against. But it also happens, of course, with circle two people who are people that we choose. Of course, those relationships tend to be, again, people that we choose. So hopefully we choose people that bring out the best in us, that we enjoy being with, that uh, we don't have hakpada against. But again, if things do happen in those circles, and they do, you know, we have the choice of walking away, uh, doing the, the tool of Vitor, right, which says that I'm going to let it go. I'm going to uh, drop my measuring stick. I'm not going to measure you the way, um, I'm not going to walk around measuring, um, you know, again, you did this for me, I do more for you. You don't do enough. I do more. I would never say such a thing. How could you say such a thing? And we work on dropping the measuring stick and walking away and letting it go. Because we said from the Gemara and Rosh Hashanah that, of course, the way a person judges other people to the degree that a person is, uh, is, um, lets things go and, um, gives the person the benefit of the doubt, we said, that is the same degree and measurement at which Hashem judges us and gives us a break and lets us go and says, you know what, I'm not going to be so muckpeed with that person because they're not muckpeed on other people. Okay, circle three people, just to remind ourselves, hi, are those people that come in and out of our life, right? The guy who cuts you off in traffic, the person at the bank who buds in, the lady who's taking too long in Metro to get her credit card out. Whatever it is, those everyday annoyances where we do have hakpada, where we have that same feeling of annoyance of, you know, how could they do this? I would never do that. And again, you know, all of these uh, feelings of hakpada are normal and natural according to the Balai Musar. In every kind of character development class that I teach, uh, some of the fundamental ideas are, number one, that we're not responsible for our primary response. Revolva says that it's normal, it's natural to be human. That primary response of jealousy, of uh, ungenerosity, of not wanting to do for that person, because what do they do for me? etc. Those are all normal and natural and we should not beat ourselves up over those feelings. 
right? Because nobody's born a tzaddik or a tzaddikus. Everybody has to get there. But what we are responsible for and where free will does kick in is with our secondary response. In other words, what are we going to do with this emotion? Are we going to let it stay there? Which again, we said is over on so many mitzvahs in the Torah, especially when it comes to Akpada. We're not allowed to bear a grudge. We're not allowed to hate somebody in our heart, right? We're doing Parshas right now with Yosef and his brothers, which bring up all of these different ideas. We're supposed to judge others favorably. Um, you know, you're not supposed to judge a person until you're in his place. So many mitzvahs that basically let us know that we're not allowed to remain with that primary feeling and response, but we have to work through them. And again, some people and some situations in our lives could take years for us to sort of break, crumble that hakpada that we've developed. Others can take less time. And there are unresolved issues in some people's lives and families that really probably could never go away. And Dina Schoonmaker says, you know, just leave those alone, but focus on the ones that are in front of you and that you can change and that you can work on, etc. So again, the secondary response is up to us that we do the work. And that's really what Hashem measures. It's not our primary response, but the work that we do to try and soften the way we're feeling. And the other idea, which is very important, is, and, and now we're going to be talking about our second tool again, which is uh, tochacha. So another idea that's very important is that that first primary response is always very emotional. You know, we are consumed by the emotion of how dare that person did that to me. And like I said, you know, you can wake up the next morning or for months after and you can't even get Moda'ani out of your mouth and you're still already thinking that person's already in your mind. And, you know, whether it's revenge or it's the grudge or it's the I can't let this go or how dare they, it's there. And, and, and anyway, the point is, is that the other part of Musser and character development is that we are obliged to move it from the Regesh to the Seichal. Okay, so it's not just leaving it at that sting part, but saying, okay, now what am I going to do about this? Which tool is going to be applicable for this situation? Now, we, we, we're talking about Tochacha now, and we said a lot of things about Tochacha already just to um, introduce the idea. Number one, we said nobody likes to give Tochacha, and certainly nobody likes to get Tochacha. So Tochacha is when you basically let the other person know, you know, in a direct way what the issue was and you want to clarify things and hopefully fix things and be able to move on with the relationship in a positive and constructive way by instead of leaving it inside or doing that work that you do with Vitor within because that's good enough, you know, it's not going to work to have a conversation with somebody else. Um, but when it can work, and when it's a relationship that's ongoing, for example, with our spouses or people who are in our inner circle and close to us, then it's a mitzvah to do it if we can do it in the right way. Now, we all know that many, many great rabbis said that this generation can't do it properly, so don't do it, because right after it says, it says, and don't bear a sin. 
right? So it's telling us what, what does it mean? Don't bear a sin. So clearly one is that you did it in a wrong way and you made things worse. But we said the other way is that, you know, perhaps you find out that you were the one who did something wrong. Okay. When you bring out the, the, when you have the discussion, sometimes the reason we don't want to have it is we said, number one, you feel like the underdog. You're coming with your petty concern and saying, you know, I don't understand. I invited you to all my simchas and like, you know, I mean, would we ever dare, you know, to stop somebody and say that? But like, you, you forgot to invite me or did something happen or I'm sure you didn't mean to or maybe it's Kamsa Bar Kamsa. You got the name wrong and it, or it didn't come in the mail, but something, right? And sometimes we find out, guess what? There really was a story there and the other person didn't know. But obviously if we never broach the issue, we could spend the rest of our lives stewing. I told you that story about uh, my son. Oh, maybe I told it to my Asia Torah class. Wait, I had something else happen. Oh, yeah. I had something else happen that I just, for me, was a wake-up call. And it happens all the time. I, I, I teach kids at Yesode. And uh, one kid asked to use the bathroom. And I said, sure, go ahead. And I only had two kids in this session. So he went to the bathroom. Then he came back. And instead of coming into my class, he just stood at the window, sort of like smiling, right? Okay, whatever. It's grade two, right? So I figured I'm just going to ignore him. And if he's doing this, I'm going to continue with the one kid, even though they're supposed to be doing this together. So I just ignored him, this and that. And then he finally came back in. And I even got up at one point and went out to see if he's in the hallway. What's he doing? Anyway, I sat down. I um, This was happen to you all the time. I started teaching the other kid, and this kid finally comes back in, and he said something like, no, you have to go back. I missed this whole part. What did we do? What? I said, listen, I'm not going back. You chose to fool around and this and that. He goes, no, I came back, and then I realized I had to go to the bathroom again. <laughs> you know? like, and it was purely pure and whole, you know. It was like he wasn't lying. It was clear, right? And I said, see, it's like amazing how... And I mean, would you think that? No, you wouldn't, right? You'd think, I mean, I have some real uh, mischievous kids. You'd think, like, chutzpah, you know, come and smile at me and then disappear again, right? But it just, it just, these things are happening now that I'm teaching this, right? And I'm more aware of how quickly we go. And if I had come up with any cockamamie imaginative idea of why he would be in the window doing that, it would probably have been closer to the truth than my first impulse, than my gut reaction, than what you see is what you what is, right? I had this too with my daughter. She was going, she was coming down south. She she lives in Thornhill, and she was taking a kid to the doctor. And after the doctor, she said, "I'm going to go out for lunch with him." So she was talking about her two year old, right, who doesn't even talk yet hardly, right? So I said, well, you're in the neighborhood. Why don't you just join me for lunch? You know, I'll make you guys something. We'll have to No, he's really counting on this. I'm like, he is? She goes, yes, you know, he likes special time too. And she's going on and on about no. And I'm thinking like, okay, I mean, isn't it special time to come to me? I mean, you know, how often do I see you? This is that. Anyway, I find out like a few days later, she wasn't talking about the two-year-old. She was talking about the five-year-old, which of course I could understand. Okay, five years old. I understand special time with mommy, but two years old, the kid, like he doesn't, he wouldn't remember, you know, like who knows, whatever. Anyway, and then my other daughter goes, doesn't she know that memories don't stay in your mind till after three? 
you know, whatever. Anyway, but again, like the idea is, is that sometimes we're missing the detail. Sometimes we're missing the detail. Sometimes we'll, we're in the middle of a story and we get ourselves all worked up. <clears throat> And we really don't know the whole picture. So again, sometimes when we use tohacha, when we have that direct conversation, a lot of things can come out of it that turn out to really assuage that hakpada uh, that we would be holding on to if only we would have, that, have had that conversation. So we have to learn how to have that conversation. And that's what we've been talking about. We've been talking about tips. Tips to be able to have these conversations. And we talked a little bit about collusion, about why people don't have the conversation. So collusion is when two people, um, without speaking about it, have decided that there's certain things that they're not going to talk about. You know, so we said that with spouses, for example. They gave an example that you can have a spouse that uh, likes to read at the table, and the other spouse also doesn't mind reading at the table. So a collusion is, this is good for me, this is good for you, because we don't, you know, we've had a busy day, we both want to relax, we don't want to talk, okay? You can have people like this, right? But it's not good for the relationship, Right? So sometimes people in an unspoken way will do things that are good for each of them because they've got sort of decided on this non-spoken way of behavior, which, but it isn't good for the relationship. Okay, I've decided I don't want to give you tohaha, you know, because I know it's going to be very hard for you. You don't like getting tohaha, right? So this is good for me, it's good for you, but it's not so good for the relationship because a lot of things go unresolved and a lot of things are never discussed, and a lot of things are creating resentments that are never going to get fixed. And we can live like this, and we can both decide this is fine, you know, because we both agreed that we'd rather not have the conversation, because whenever we have, it's never been good, right? But ultimately, it's not very good for the relationship. You look like you're confused. What, no, just like, oh, I thought that stuff that was more halakhic. Because um, if you're dealing with something that just, let's say, personality, I enjoy reading more than you do, and I'm not ignoring you, I just enjoy reading, then it doesn't have to... Um, no, this is where both people enjoy. enjoy do, uh, both people have agreed that, you know, we're not going to... We're, we're going to do it this way, even though it's not good for the relationship. This is called a collusion, where two people are doing the same thing. It's not a problem, right? It's not a problem with them, right? But it's not good for the relationship, because if you never talk, or we said two people are really high-powered career people, and it's kind of like, you know what, we both agreed that during this time of our life, we have no time for each other, but we're going to meet up somewhere down the road when our careers relax, or whatever. It doesn't have to be a high-powered career. It could just be people who are constantly busy on their phone today, right? It could be like, I've got to get back to this person. I've got to do this. And you both agreed that I'm going to be doing the same thing when we're together. And I mean, we can see this all the time today, what a difficult thing it is now that we're all addicted to our phones and to the degree that we're addicted. You know, and even if we're not addicted and we're only on WhatsApp and this and that, we're not on Instagram and Facebook and textbook and, this, and all the millions of things you can be on, it's still incredible how your phone calls you and how people are indignant, 
if you didn't call them back or be in touch with them 20 seconds after they've been in touch with you. I mean, you know, but if you've both agreed that that's the way you're going to lead your life, then it's good for you, it's good for me. But the relationship, I don't know. Like, what's it going to be like down the road? Okay, everybody understands this, right? Okay, so we talked about some ways of how to give tochacha. How do you give tochacha? In the most ideal situations and with people that you feel are going to be able to be mekabel. Because obviously tochacha is something that has to be done very rarely. If you overdo it, the person stops listening to you. We know this with our kids, right? Growing up, how difficult that is. We know we said that it's eight, you know, Sarah Hano, we said, I don't, I don't know if she's changed it now, but it was always 80, 20, you know, 80 positive, 20 negative, because the, the negative that you put in are called emotional withdrawals. Even if you do it perfectly, even if it's done with love, as we said, a lot of the reason why Tochacha never works is because we are not really doing it with love. That within that love, there's a schmeck of you're driving me crazy. Or, you know, I can't stand this. And that's why the person receiving it, that's what they pick up on. But we said with husbands, it's 95.5, you know, maybe even 98.2. I don't know, depending on your husband, in terms of the ability to give that criticism and hope that it's going to be taken in the right way. Um, so there's a few rules, a few communication techniques to how to give tochacha. So we said, first of all, you have to set the right time and place for tochacha experience. You don't, you know, yell it while the person's, uh, you know, running out the door to their morning meeting. Right? But I have to tell you that, right? Whatever it is. But we do that sometimes, right? Because we just got a great idea and we figured, you know, we've got to say this now. And who knows if I'll ever see you again. No, whatever. The point is, is, you know, we, we just want to do it now. So that's wrong. That's part of seichel, right? That's part of taking it from the regish to the seichel and getting yourself properly ready for a time and a place. You know, could we, could we talk about, could we meet, have a meeting later today? Could we sit down together? There's really something I want to talk to you about. You know, let's go out for dinner. Let's, let's try to make this as nice as possible this setting and the timing, you know, that's that's the first thing. The second thing is tone. We said that no matter what you say, even if you say it in the most beautiful way, you know, and it looks perfect on paper, once you put your tone in, of, of course, that can override the words. Because I, they always give examples that the same sentence, right, mm -hmm. which could sound lovely, when you say it in the same, you say the same words but with a different tone, how it becomes completely negative. I had an experience, I think she was doing something with me before, in preschool, one of my kids gets their report card, and it must have been the baggage I was carrying with me. When I read the report card, I was so personally insulted for my child. Yeah. And I called the principal of the preschool and complained, you know, how can you talk this way about a child? I really went off, like, I was so upset. And a good chunk of time later, maybe even months later, maybe even a year later, Looking back at that report card, I said, oh, I remember that report card, and I reread it. I'm like, actually, that's, that's not insulting. So, like, it's not just the tone, because I'm sure... Yeah, well, we said that with texting and everything, right? That people right. can really make a lot of mistakes mm -hmm. with people, what people are sending them, because there's no tone. So I'm suggesting that beyond that, it's also, I guess, the mood that the recipient is in. So you could be doing 
check mark. You got the right time, got the right tone. If the recipient isn't, if the recipient has put you in a box and there's nothing you can say that yes. will be good enough, right? And again, that that's always the danger. That's why we're always afraid of tochacha because. We don't know how it's going to be received, and very often we've had experiences where it's made things worse, where we've gotten ourselves into a whole situation because of it, where nobody leaves feeling good, or we find out that we're the perpetrator, right? Which sometimes maybe even be easier than the other the other things happening. But there's also an idea called intent impact discrepancy, right? Where the person's intent and the way the other person received it. There's very often like a discrepancy between the two. And so, you know, we have that happen a lot in life and in everyday circumstances. And again, you know, when we become more conscious of dealing with other people, giving other people the benefit of the doubt, making that more of our primary response, because one of the things that uh, she discusses later on is how do you get your secondary response to be quicker? You know, how do you get to go from your primary response to your secondary much more quickly? So that takes practice, right? And the more we practice this with banal type of situations, things that aren't really big, you know, the lady in line in front of you or whatever it is, the more we practice these things, then hopefully we, we, we gain cognitive flexibility, and we become more lighter on our, instead of on our feet, we become lighter in our heads to be able to move out of that, you know, to recognizing there's a lot of intent, impact, discrepancy that goes on where the person's intention was not anything of what you thought. Okay, now we're going to talk more about that when we get further on. Okay, we said, we talked about the sandwich method, right? A proven psychological method that when you give, Shana gave us an example in school or with, you know, teachers and speaking to parents that you always give a, a positive, you say something positive before you start, you know, um, you know, a really some kind of appreciative thing or if it's a relationship, a circle one relationship, something you admire, something that you appreciate. And then you cushion the, the tohaha inside the sandwich and you end again with something positive. Okay, and that's one of the methods that they use. Another one is not to label, right? That we say we, we don't like this. It's not the sinners that uh, should disappear, but the sins. So once we start labeling a person, you know, well, you can't help yourself because your mother's like that. And, you know, <laughs> if your family's like that, and, you know, it's clear that you can't, you know, this is the way you were brought up. Once we start labeling and this and that, we've already closed the other person down to wanting to listen to us. Um, and then we said to use constructive and not critical words. Okay, so I'm going to continue now with the idea of how do you deal with another person's anger? Okay, so very often when somebody comes home or into our world and they're angry, we'll say things to them like, why are you so angry? What's wrong with you? What's, what's going on? Why are you so angry? So Stephen Covey says that we should not refer to their anger because we, we should refer to their hurt. Because whenever a person's angry, on a deeper level, it's because there's a hurt that's going on, okay? So whenever you say to somebody, why are you so angry? You're never going to get a good response. But Stephen Covey says you should say, what's hurting you? 
Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. What's hurting you? Because he says anger is hiding a hurt. It's a cry for closeness. We need to address the deeper aspect of anger. Then the message will come across in a softer and more sympathetic way. Everybody hear that? Okay. So Anthony Robbins, who's another, I guess, emotional, uh, do you know him? I've heard of him. Guru, right? EQ guru. He talks about something called intelligent non-aggressiveness in communication. And he says, quote, find commonality first, something that we both agree on, and then lead the conversation in your direction. He says, gently align and lead instead of pushing violently. So here's a few examples. We both want this vacation to be successful. And I think in order for that to happen, we might have to do A, B, and C. Okay, so you're together on this. You're a team. We both want this, right? So maybe this will be the the way to do it. So you discuss the common goal and then you lead it. We both care a lot about this relationship. And so I think if A, B, and C, if we could practice this or put this into our week, you know, that we have date night every Wednesday or, you know, we have time where we just sit and talk about nothing to do with the kids, right? About what we're going through, about our life, about our goals and aspirations. Or, you know, you can even, you can go on this um, John Gottman Marriage Institute. I just checked it out. Yeah, they have like all kinds of categories and questions and things that you can um, sort of engage your spouse with, which is interesting. You can Google it and see what it says. Okay, we both want a more peaceful home. So let's see, what can we do about it? So you first align the person with you and then you present the plan. Okay, now what can happen is when re- when realities clash, this is a different point. Um, when you, when you find you're in a situation with somebody else and your realities clash, what are you talking about? I never said that. What do you mean? I didn't mean that we're supposed to do this. We were supposed to do that. So when realities clash like that, um, you should assume the problem is memory or perception, but not a problem of integrity. If you assume the other person is lying, it will affect the quality of the communication. If instead you say to yourself, it's a memory or perception issue, what are you talking about? You t- you said that. You know, you told me that, you know, I should, uh, I don't know, pick up the dry cleaners and I don't know, whatever it is, right? So instead of assuming when, when you talk, we're saying when you're giving the tohaha, you know, if you have in the back of your mind this, this idea of you're a liar or, you know, you're, you're crazy or, or, you know, why are you trying to make me feel like I'm the, I'm the one who was in the wrong? So she says right away that, or psychology says that if you have this perception that the person is lying, that's not good. So you always have to have a, or, or that they have no integrity. You have to try and, and again, this is sort of broadening our lens and realizing that in a lot of cases, or probably in 99% of cases, we're not dealing with a pathological liar. We're not dealing with a Russia. Okay. We're dealing with a normal human being. And perhaps, you know, their perception was off. The kid was looking through the mirror window. He was going, nah, 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 you know? 
Maybe not. Maybe he was just thinking, hmm, do I have to go again? You know, like, uh, who would think that, you know? Um, but if you assume the other person's lying, it's going to affect. So you have to say there was no malicious intent. And I love this story. I think I heard it from Rabbi Tzvi Sittner. But he said there was this little girl, and she had two apples. And she says to her mommy, she was about six years old, she says to her mommy, Mommy, which apple do you want? I got these two apples. Which apple do you want? And while the mother is deciding, the kid takes a bite of both apples, right? And the mother's in shock. Like, what is that? And the kid says, Mommy, take this one. It tastes better. Right? So, again, another story where you could be like, what? Like, what is that, right? Fuming. But we don't, we're not inside the mind of the other person. We don't really understand what's going on. So, another klal when it comes to, before you can even give tochacha, is to realize there was no malicious intent. The Assume the person is not out to get you. I am sure you did not want to hurt me. Right? Most people will not admit that they were trying to hurt you because most people aren't really trying to hurt you. They're just limited. They have limitations in the way that they see things, do things, understand things. There are some people in our lives that just don't read social cues well. There are some people in our lives that don't have a great level of EQ, though they may, might have very IQ, high IQs right? Emotional quotient, right? Which they say people with a higher EQ actually do much better in life generally than people with a very high IQ. Okay, so as much as our our schools measure IQ more than the other, those are not necessarily the people who are going to achieve a lot in life, right? But the people who know how to get along with other people and really read other people and understand social cues and understand. I had one son who was very precocious from the time he was little, and I remember it was very uh, it was very aware of him, but he really knew how to make people feel good. He was the kid who, when he'd go over to his friend's houses, he was in the kitchen with the mother. So I always hear from mothers, like, for years later, like, oh, I love that son. He's all, you know, he, he'd always talk to me. He'd always this. He'd always come in. Anyway, so once he said to me, you know, Ema, I really know how to make people feel good. He goes, I need to be careful with that because I could really, I could really abuse that. Like he, he said it in a, in a childlike way, but that's what he was saying that he really knows how flattery, like in the negative, right? Could get you everywhere, as my mother would say. Flattery will get you everywhere when we compliment her or whatever. But, but yeah, but it was interesting that some people, again, they have that knack. They know how to read people. They know what makes people feel good. Right? Yeah. And they know how to draw people in. And they can even maybe give tochacha because they're so likable. And they've already Where made you... you Where do you learn it? It's a good question. I don't know if you can learn it. Again, we could try to learn it. Yeah, it's a gift. It's a gift. It's chen, right? It's, a, it's an extra dose of chen. But we can try to learn it. And, 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 and this is what we're trying to do. But for some people, it's just natural because they just have this intuitive understanding of other people, right, and love for them. Um, <clears throat> so don't assume that the people you're trying to talk to have any kind of malicious intent. Intent. Another thing, don't exaggerate when you're giving tochacha. You never remember my birthday. 
You always forget to be here on time. Be accurate. Don't globalize. Okay? When you're in the middle of giving tochacha, make sure um, that there's not going to be any kind of diversion. In other words, nobody's going to walk out of the room prematurely. It's it's very uncomfortable, she said, if either you're getting tochacha or you're trying to give it, if the person's going to have to leave in the middle, or you can understand through that. Um, Because there's an implication of desertion. I'm sitting alone with my sad feelings that I was trying to express, and it's very hurtful. Okay, there should be some kind of wrap-up, even if you're not finished the conversation. But some kind of wrap-up or some kind of, you know, can we continue this next week or could we make a time next week to talk about this? Because this is really important to me. And I know that you, you know, that we together want this to be, want to have a good time on this trip or have a good relationship or change the way we behave at the dinner table or get off of our phones more often or whatever it is. This is really important to me. So it's okay to end the conversation prematurely, but not in a way where the person just, but with a kind of wrap-up. Okay? Um, Or even a a, a don't worry, but we're going to work this out. You know, we're going to figure this out. And there always needs to be some kind of closure, she says, when you're having a conversation like this. Okay, John Gottman, who is the head of this marriage institute, he says there's a very important key involved in being able to have the conversation, and that is that it shouldn't escalate. And there are people who are very good at making sure that conversations de-escalate as opposed to get worse and worse. In other words, you start discussing something and everybody starts getting heated up and it goes out of control and it becomes haywire. So um, he did a, a study. <clears throat> he studies marriages and he says he wanted to evaluate the number of perpetual issues that go on in relationships. Now this could be a relationship with a spouse, with children, It could be a relationship with a good friend, right? It's called a perpetual issue. It's an issue that keeps resurfacing, right? It's one of the themes of your relationship. For example, it could be attitudes towards money, right? You have one spouse who's very tight with money and the other spouse who's very free spending, right? You have one spouse who's very clean and organized and punctual and neat and another who is completely the opposite, right? Makes it very difficult. So he decided that his thesis was, the assumption was that the more perpetual issues in a relationship, the less marital satisfaction there's going to be. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. But what he discovered is that there's no correlation at all between the two. Okay, that you could have a lot of perpetual issues and have great marital satisfaction, or you could have few perpetual issues and have terrible marital satisfaction. So let me explain. Now, what would you think? You would think that the more issues that you have, the less happy, and the fewer issues, the more happy the couple would be. But there's no correlation between the two. So if you think about your own relationships just for a second and, you know, what might be a perpetual issue in your marriage, 
he says that 10 are the highest number of perpetual issues. Um, why is it the perpetual issues do not indicate happiness or not? So what he discovered is it's not about how many issues you have, but what's your system of communication. Okay, so you could have a lot of issues that come up, but if the couple has a good system for working out issues by communication, it doesn't damage the relationship. Isn't that incredible? But if it's not a good system of communication, then there could be one issue. You know, he throws his socks on the floor, you know, and she doesn't like it. And that could be enough for perpetual fighting. Okay, so again, you know, we're talking about the ability to communicate and to better ourselves because there's nobody who can't benefit from becoming a better communicator. Some people are just really, really good at it. I mean, I, I don't know whether my son got it from my mother, but my mother was very, very good at it. She was very um, not an emotional type. I mean, okay, she had her moments, but my, my two brothers ahead of me could have driven anybody off the cliff. <laughs> Sorry. But, um, I mean, she was definitely tested. But I remember as a teenager, um, and I guess I wasn't so hot either because my father used to say it got better after me. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, she, if she was upset with me, I, I, I would find like a letter next to my bed and, and I, I would be like, I would, I couldn't even read the first two sentences without bawling because just the, the love that was in it, you know, it was probably a letter of disappointment or surprise or how could you pus this, you know, to act like that, to do this, whatever it was. But, she, you know, she was extremely measured always in the way she was going to talk to you and putting the positive and then the, the criticism and, I mean, whatever. She, I, I think she was a master at that. So I'm saying some people just have it, but most of us, you know, really have to work. And I'm not saying every time she said anything, it was macabre and, you know, everybody was fine. But I know that she put a lot of thought into it and a lot of love into it so that you were able to be macabre in a completely different way. Um, okay, so we talked about escalation. So usually um, it's an escalation of negativity as soon as we start to discuss an issue, right? And part of being a good communicator is a concept called de-escalation. It's the know-how to bring the heat down, okay? Even if you're not emotionally composed or the other person might not be or you might start becoming emotional, there's an emotional intelligence to bring escalation to a calmer place. And this is a key skill for tohaha or any kind of communication. So she gives an example, like if things are starting to escalate, you kind of go and open a window, like you, you distract, you, you move away from it. Or you say, hey, would you like a drink? You know, or you compliment the other person on something. Or you crack a joke. All of these are just samples of, depending on who you're dealing with and what's gonna work, right? You can diffuse what looks like it's going to get heated and hopefully bring it back to where you want it to be, okay? And by doing this, she says, you're putting a human dimension back into the communication. So don't let it reach a point where you're hurdling terrible words at each other, 
And she says the last resort is to end the conversation and say, let's end this before we're both hurt. Okay? Um, you know, sometimes you have to tell the other person when they want to bring things up with you and you can see that it's not a good time, it's an emotional time. And you're both still not, you know, in a state of being able to discuss this. And sometimes you can tell the other party, you know, I really don't want to discuss this now. Or, you know, could we do this later? I see that you're very emotional. And a lot of times a person's so emotional, like, no, I want to talk about it right now. We're talking about this now. You know, you're always doing this. You never let me talk. Right? So I'm saying, like, it can be difficult, but often we know and we have that sense that even if the person can't accept that we're not going to talk about this now, if we know that it's coming from a place of control and knowledge that it's going to get worse, and it's not because we're trying to escape the conversation all the time, which could be a problem, right? But we really do want to address this issue. But let's try and do this. I see this really hurts you. Well, what's hurting you, right? I see this really hurts you, but I think... It would be better for us to discuss this when we're both calmed down. Why don't we make a, a date? Why don't we go out next week? Why don't we, right? So we can be the one that de-escalates the person sometimes in the moment of, no, this is not tochacha. This is not going to be a good tochacha session here. This is going to be, you know, what's it called? Um, uh, what does she call it? A kitchen sinking, right? Where you're just piling one thing on top of the other. You know, you never do this. You always do that. And your mother hates me. And blah, 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 right? And you just keep going at it. Okay. So we don't want that to happen. Okay. We're hoping the person accepts the fact that there is a need for a change. And, um, you have to think about, think about, about it like that before beginning the conversation. And that you're going to give a practical solution and you're going to give a practical skill. You know what? It would re I would really like it if you called me, you know, during the day if you're going to be late. Like just a practical skill, right? So if you have something practical that you can tell the other person to do, it's always going to be a better conversation. You know, like my husband always says, write me a list. Like he, you know, whatever. He just says, give me the practical stuff, okay? You, you need more help before Shabbos, whatever it is. Give me three things that I'm going to do where it's going to get rid of your resentment, right? Because you feel like you're working as a team. You're on board together. And a lot of times men just need to be, you know, they, they, they don't do well with the emotion, right? So if we can just in a non-emotional time say, you know, if you could do A, B, and C, I would so appreciate it. It would make my Friday so much easier. I would just, if, if that's, if that, you know, if that's something you could do, that would be, Right. And they, to give a very, to just talk without any practical, you know, ideas is very difficult, I think, especially for men. You know, women can have these feeling emotional talks. They don't have to really go anywhere. They could just be letting it out. Right. But men don't really get that very well. I was going to add that they say that for kids too. Like if kids aren't behaving or complying with expectations at school instead of just saying, you know, you stop talking or, or whatever, yeah, stop doing this. They need the replacement behavior. You need to say what you do want them to do because right. and that so often piece we forget is, that. Yeah, and that uh -huh. piece is important also. Very, very good. So that's some practical tip for any relationship that you can think of in your life that 
you know, maybe needs a little bit of improvement and, you know, how you can put that in there. Okay. Um, you can give a direction as to how not to offend again. For example, practical things. You know, next time could you call me if you're running late? You know, um, if you're upset, you could say something like, you know, let, can we can we sleep on this before we talk about it? You're saying these are, or you know what? Um, I really don't like when you use that word when we discuss this. You know, it just rubs me the wrong way. Or you know, I have a certain sensitivity that whenever you bring up that, I don't know why I have it, but whenever you bring up my mother or whatever, or my siblings or my cousins or whatever, it just makes me want to stop talking, you know, and not continue our conversation. So, you know, if there's something practical, even in that way, that can help the conversation and you let the other person know, listen, it's not you, I have the sensitivity, Right? I can't, you can't, I can't, I can't hear that word. I can't hear that expression. It just rubs me the wrong way. It's me. Okay? Uh, do you, and then she says, um, sometimes you can temporarily see a change after having the conversation, but old habits die hard. Okay? So sometimes it will come back and it's time to reevaluate and it's not easy to have the conversation over again. Um, it can be very uncomfortable, right? It can, and you could think about a friendship too. It doesn't have to be your circle one. It could be a friendship, right? And you could still, you could say to, to the person though, you know, do you mind if next month we sort of evaluate where we are and we talk for a few seconds to see how we're doing in this area, in this particular area that we're trying to work on? Okay. So that's just another tool so that it's an ongoing talk because you know that old habits die hard and it may be difficult on both sides, right? Maybe the other person's also said, well, I would like you to do A, B, and C, right? Sometimes spouses have this exercise where you write a list of like what I'd really love for you to change and do. Have you ever heard of that one? And they write, you write the same, you write one back and you find out that a lot of the things are so easy and like it's like if you'd only known really you like uh, your slippers by the door i don't know whatever it is right that would make you happy like that would really you know <laughs> whatever the expression is um you know like it's it's amazing and if it's done in a spirit of of kindness and true love and wanting the relationship to be better it can be a very eye-opening Things. So that's an idea, you know, like write down five things that you'd really love me to do. And they could be very simple. And the other person can be very responsive because you're not having a negative tohaha conversation here, but it's an opportunity for you to be able to say, I'd really love if you set up my candles every week. You know, really? I didn't know that. Well, because you didn't hear me say it in a negative way for the last 20 years, right? <laughs> but that's a possibility. That's a, that's a way to do it. Okay, so we're moving on now to how to receive tochacha. Okay, because it's one thing to dish it out, as they say. It's another thing how you're going to take it when you get it. Okay, so it it does take two to tango. That is why the expression is there. And suddenly you're on the other end of the tochacha picture. So one of the things that you need to do is model receiving tochacha in a very, you know, 
elevated way because what you're doing is teaching them at the same time of how they should be receiving Tochaka. So it's it's a win-win, right? It's good for you, it's good for them if you model this well. And and it's not so simple, right? Because you've just changed from the victim to the perpetrator. Okay. Um, when it comes to receiving rebuke, we should, number one, expect or not expect that other people uh, will be such good receivers, even if we are, even if we do have that capacity and that self-awareness and that love of criticism, ohev es tochacha, one of the 48 ways to wisdom, that we love criticism because it helps us see where we're going wrong. And like I said, you know, we're all in a box. We, we can't see ourselves from the outside. Only the people around us can let us know how we're doing. You know, we can think we know ourselves, but we really have a very subjective and limited view because we're all in this box, right, which we come up and... And you could check out these videos on the, whatever that's called the School of Life. And it's a guy named Alan de Baton who says this idea about being in a box. And he has little cartoons to show it. But he has he's a Jewish guy who's an atheist. He actually uh, discussed religion with Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. I, I Googled it. It says that, you know, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs went into the lion's den with three three known atheists. And this guy, Alan de Baton, is one of them. But he has a lot of wisdom. And he really believes, like in schools and stuff, instead of teaching them, you know, how much coal is exported to, uh, you know, Ontario or wherever every year, they should be teaching them about marriage skills, about life skills, about how to get along with people. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so he's created all these videos that are called the School of Life. Anyway, very interesting. So um, anyway, in terms of receiving rebuke, so... Some of us could be very good at it. Rabbi Tarfan in the Gemara says, I would be surprised, and this is way back, Rabbi Tarfan in the Gemara, I don't know how many years ago, but let's say hundreds and hundreds of years ago, he said, he said about his generation, I would be surprised if someone in this generation could receive rebuke. Okay? Um, and yet, we're told that the greatest present we can give someone is constructive criticism. Because really, if a person understands that the whole reason that we're in this world is to achieve shlemus, right? To achieve completion. And it's like, you know, we're this vessel that wants to be whole, but there's some holes in it, okay? We want shlemus, but there's holes. And those holes are leaking out a lot of goodness that could be in the vessel. But because there's some cracks so the idea is that a person who loves criticism understands that I want Shlemus, and if I could fix that hole, my life would be more fulfilling. Now, if your focus is self-improvement, you will welcome criticism, even because of those little holes that stop us from achieving maximum potential. And if someone who cares for you is giving you that criticism, it's worthwhile for you to listen. Okay, so this is the attitude and the posture of a growing person who understands that all of the people in our lives and everything that happens to us is all coming from Hashem as a nudge towards perfection and shlemus and correcting ourselves. 
And we're going to talk more about this when we get to the bitachon and emuna part of how to deal with hakpada. But the question that we're asking is not, why is she doing this to me? Or why is he doing that to me? But why is he doing this to me? And we take it up to a more spiritual place. And when we do that and we understand that life is about perfecting our mitos and correcting ourselves, then somebody who really has integrated that idea welcomes the constructive, especially, criticism of people who love them and want to help them. And, you know... Don't want to, you know, take, they want to take away the stumbling block before the blind person, which is us, because again, we're in our box and we don't see things the way other people do. So, David Amelech said, we can learn from our enemies too, not only the people who give it to you in a nice little package with a bow on top, and you admire that person and you're happy to get their criticism because they do know more than you in whatever it is, right? Um, whether it, you know, if you think of it in terms of a skill and, you know, you want to get better at the skill that you know, but, you know, you could be with the master painter. You know, you've just been doing uh, um, paint by number, right? And somebody wants to come and teach you how to, you know, make your uh, art more exciting. I actually have an example of that. I have a friend who is an artist, and she's a fantastic artist, but her work is very stiff, sort of, you know, very real. And my mother was an, was an artist as well, and I put them t- the two together when, when she lost her husband, this friend of mine. And I thought it would be good for my mother, too, to, my, my fa- you know, she, her, she was busy with my father. And so I said, why don't you give her lessons? So my mother took all of her paintings that she already had and just showed her, because my mother was really a watercolor artist, she showed her how to make it more exciting and how to take the mm-hmm. same talent, but to really learn a whole new technique. And, you know, of course you want to learn from somebody like that. As as hard as it was for her, she said it was so hard for her to get out of her box. But call the Chomer, when we're talking about, you know, fixing ourselves in terms of our character, um, we should welcome that from a master. We, we would welcome it from a master, you know, constructive criticizer. But we have to learn, David Amelik says, to even... Uh, master it when it comes to our enemies. David Amelech said, when my enemies talk against me, my ears should listen. He says that, you know, even your enemies, even the people who are giving it to you in not a very nice way, and, you know, you have to deal with that sting and all of that, but if you maybe go over it and say, is there anything that they said that I could learn from? Because sometimes it's from our enemies that we actually get the greatest clarity about where we're going wrong. So that comes from David Amelach. How are we doing with time? 10.33. Okay, so I'm just going to finish this last point. So really a person who's developing themselves and and, 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 um, and really uh, wants, you know, is committed to their own self-growth, would say, you know, that I'm so thankful that I have the opportunity to fill this gap in my personality, which will help me attain everything that I could have in my life. Okay, so we know that, you know, when we, when we daven, we have the word lehit paleo, right? Which we all probably heard this class that why do we have a reflexive verb when we're talking about davening? I mean, lehit always means it's something you do to yourself. 
And lahit paleo means actually to judge oneself, to examine yourself. And so, you know, one of the philosophical underpinnings of prayer is that when you come before Hashem, you're actually doing a self-judgment because you're saying, Hashem, I'm asking you for all these things, but the question is, is number one, do I deserve, not, not just do I deserve them, but am I, have I evolved to the type of personality where if you would give me the things that I want, that I'd actually use them in the right way, that I'd actually do something good with them? Because, you know, we all want the good stuff, but Hashem withholds the good stuff very often because he says, well, you know what? The good stuff ain't good for you because you're going to, with all this money or with all this health, or with, you know, you're going to just be going the wrong way and not be doing the introspection and the character improvement that you need to do. So we want to say to Hashem, listen, I'm going to be doing the character uh, perfection and introspection without any hardships. I can handle the good stuff. Right, because I've evolved into a personality where I'm going to use all of that. Because I'm a full clean now. I'm not. I don't have any leaks. I don't have any holes. I'm working to develop myself and to um, be my own, uh, be my own judge. So that when you judge me, you can judge me to say, oh, you know, she could handle these benefits and these good things. Right? I can. I mean, I can give. Gross examples, you know, somebody who wins the lottery, right, and their lives are destroyed by it because it's, they, they're, they're clean. They weren't a Kaylee to be able to receive this kind of thing, and it totally destroyed them. Or, you know, even families with wealth that unfortunately, you know, don't know how to handle it and destroy their children and future generations not teaching them how to handle it properly or, you know... Good health. I mean, you know, what do you do when you have good health? What are you busy with? What are you running to do mitzvahs or are you wasting your time with nourishkeit? So everything is, Hashem is judging. You know, what are you going to do with what I gave you? Okay, so the tochacha means I want to be a greater person. So you, um, I have an aspiration for greatness. Um, okay, so I think we're going to stop there. We'll talk a little bit more next week about, uh, Again, how to receive tochacha, the proper way of looking at it. And uh, then we'll hopefully be ready to go on to our next tool, which is going to be humor. How does humor help us handle hakpada? How do we use humor to get rid of that internalized anger and resentment and be able to be lighter about the things that other people do to us that we don't particularly enjoy? Okay, thank you, and have a wonderful day. Do you want to discuss tickets, 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 tickets,